Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. As we move from gathering to listening, our scripture reading today is from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, family. Hi. Uh, my name is Amy. If we haven't met yet, I'm one of the pastors on the team. And in answer to Sean's question, I was debating, it's either Victoria Curry's Snickerdoodles, which if you know, you know, or my very own mashed potatoes, which I have one more serving left. So today the mashed potatoes come to an end. But I hope you all had good answers to that question and enjoyed some good food this weekend. Um, as you know, for the last couple of months, uh, we've been in a series looking at the whole gospel. And this is our last Sunday in the series. I get to close it down uh, before we begin the season of Advent next week. To quickly recap where we've been, we've seen that if we as a church are going to be faithful to the way of Jesus, then we aren't going to fit nicely into any of the categories our culture tries to put us in. True Christianity is neither conservative or liberal, it's something else entirely. We've been using this chart to help explain how for the past couple hundred years, we've had two major streams of Protestant Christianity in our country mainline Protestantism on the left and evangelicalism on the right. And the question we've been asking during this series is, what if we took a both and approach to our faith rather than an either or? What if we don't have to just settle for one half of the gospel? What would it look like to be a church that's about the whole gospel? Our answer is that we would be a church that's about the gospel of Jesus and the gospel about Jesus, 
the human authorship and divine authority of scripture, the life and the death of Christ, the deity and the humanity of Christ, individual and social sin, loving God and loving our neighbors, social justice and evangelism, historically rooted and culturally responsive worship. We've said the phrase, both and, a lot during this series, and there's such freedom and beauty in that. Our culture often wants us to stand against things, against each other, to focus on our differences, but divisiveness is not what we're called to as followers of Jesus. And so these last weeks, we've been looking for the both and, finding the gold on both sides of American faith traditions. I find it refreshing to be for the church, whether that means growing in our understanding and grace for our friends in mainline traditions or gaining new insights into evangelical leanings. We can be for the work God is doing and through and among us, all of us, the whole church. So today, we're gonna to wrap up the series by looking at the kingdom of God. Ready? Let's go. Our passage today is from Acts 1, and it describes what Jesus did during the 40 days between his resurrection and ascension. Verse 3 reads, After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. We've entered the scenes during Jesus' last days on earth before ascending back to the Father in heaven. And Luke tells us that Jesus has spent these last 40 days speaking about one thing, the kingdom of God. Have any of you been with someone as they are dying? In their last moments, the idea is that they tell you the one thing they want you to remember, right? Last words are important. So Jesus talking about the kingdom must have been incredibly important and worth paying attention to. So let's do that. We need to start by asking, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, what is he talking about? The first thing we need to know is that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the same in the Gospels. The biblical authors used which term best suited their audience. So Greeks understood the kingdom of God and Jews best understood the kingdom of heaven, but they are the same. I'm guessing that when most of us think of the kingdom of God though, we think of a place called heaven where we go when we die. But that's not how Jesus talked about the kingdom. He talks about the kingdom like it can be experienced in this life, in this world. So when Jesus talks about the kingdom, he sometimes refers to it as the kingdom of heaven, but he's not primarily talking about a place where we go when we die. So what is he talking about? Let's ask a few investigative questions. What is the kingdom of God? Where is the kingdom of God? When is the kingdom of God? And most importantly, will there be cats? Yes, there's some clapping. Do you want me just to leave that up for the whole sermon? Be good? So cute. Uh, let's seriously start with the question of what. What is the kingdom of God? The dictionary definition of a kingdom is this. 
a land ruled by a king or queen, a governmental unit often called a monarchy. Historically, we know kingdoms are one of the earliest types of societies on earth. There are even places in the world today functioning in this definition of kingdom. A monarch reigns and sets the standards for the people who live there. Folks in Jesus' time were well acquainted with kingdom rule. The Jews have been under the thumb of the Romans for decades. This is why when Jesus' first disciples heard him talk about the kingdom of God coming, they thought it would mean release from the kingdom of Rome. They knew the promises of the Old Testament well. For example, from Psalms, they knew that the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. The idea that God would disrupt earthly rule and establish his kingdom was an idea that had been hoped for for centuries. But on more than one occasion, Jesus challenged this idea of the kind of kingdom Jewish people hoped for. He tells them, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. So the answer to what the kingdom of God is, is in some ways similar to the dictionaries. The kingdom is where God rules over all, but the big difference was this kingdom, God's kingdom, is not of this world. The reign of God did not, does not, and will not look like the kingdoms of this world. This radically different style of rule is perfectly seen in Jesus's life in his suffering, his serving, and his time spent with those who held no power. Jesus did not look like any monarch anyone had ever seen, so clearly his kingdom will be unlike any other. Moving on, our next question is, where is this kingdom? Jesus tells his followers, the kingdom of God is in your midst. But if this is true, if the kingdom of God was in their midst, and if a kingdom is a place where a monarch reigns, then why were things so broken? Israel was under the harsh and cruel rule of Rome. Their long-awaited Messiah had just been crucified. It didn't look like a place where God reigned as monarch. And yet Jesus claims that the kingdom of God is near and it is good news. In Mark we read, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent, believe the good news. So where is the kingdom then? A place where God's will is done, in our midst, but not of this world. Is it any wonder the disciples were confused and uncertain? Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God and telling them it's right here. Yet they could clearly see they were still living in the brokenness of Roman rule. Okay, so like the disciples, we ask, when will this kingdom happen? In our passage this morning, we hear the disciples trying to grasp this idea. If the kingdom of God is in their midst, then surely Jesus will free Israel right away and things will be righted the way the disciples long for. They ask, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Is it now? Can you hear their hope and expectation in this question? They are asking when? But the way Jesus answers doesn't really clarify. And as you read through the Gospels, you'll notice that sometimes Jesus talks about the kingdom like it's already arrived, like in Luke 17, 
when Jesus says the kingdom is in their midst. But in that same passage, Jesus also says the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. So which is it? Is it in our midst or is it coming in ways that cannot be observed? Is the kingdom of God already here or is it not yet here? As we've been saying throughout this series, the answer is both and. So how can something be both here and not here at the same time? It sounds like a contradiction, but if you think about it, you'll begin to understand that we are surrounded by things that are already and not yet. For example, how many of you have ever tried something new? Come on, everybody. A new skill, a new sport, a new instrument, a new recipe. When you first plunk out some notes on the piano, you are already playing, but I think we'd all agree that you are not yet a pianist. When you work on perfecting an elaborate dish, you will hopefully already make something edible, but will probably feel that you have not yet perfected it. I would wager that if we all gave it enough thought, we'd realize that we spend all our lives in this already not yet space as we learn, grow, and move through challenges. We get these glimpses of success and can feel these moments of already, but I don't think we ever stop striving for greater perfection and skill. The not yet is always just out of reach. So I love learning languages, and before I traveled to Russia years ago, I learned to read the Russian alphabet, to count to 10, to say hello, goodbye, please, thank you, how to order ice cream, how to order beer, and how to say where is the bathroom. You could say that I already speak Russian, but I am most definitely not yet fluent. So if we want to continue to move towards that not yet goal, what do we need to do? Practice, practice, practice to move the needle in any skill from where we are to where we want to be, we must invest our time and efforts. There's a cost. When we put in the practice, we move closer to the already, like yeast working its way through dough to transform a whole loaf of bread, our practice can transform us. So we see examples of this both and in our everyday life. We also find some examples in fantastic stories. If y'all don't already know this about me, I love a good Broadway musical. So in addition to there being cats in heaven, I firmly believe we will all be able to sing and dance beautifully and will do so continually and in perfect choreography. Heaven, the musical for eternity. Anyone with me? Yes. One of my favorite stories that's been turned into a musical is Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. There are many stories within the story, but the one that I find the most powerful happens early in the show. The main character, Jean Valjean, has just been released from prison. He's angry and frustrated at the lack of kindness and opportunity he finds in 19th century France for a former convict. One night, hungry, cold, and tired, he huddles on the doorstep of the local church. Enter the bishop of the town. He sees the image of God in Valjean and has compassion for him. 
He welcomes him into his home, provides food, a warm bed, and safety for the night. In the middle of the night, Valjean responds to this kindness by robbing the bishop. He steals his silver to sell and sneaks out of the house. He is caught by the local police, beaten and dragged back to the bishop to return the items before he's carted off to prison again. Now here's the part of the story where we see how the bishop's practice of living in the already nature of the kingdom of God shines through. Without missing a beat, the bishop tells the police they are wrong. Valjean didn't steal the silver. It was a gift. In fact, he looks at Valjean and tells him, you forgot to take the silver candlesticks too. He thanks the police for their service and it turns his attention to the former convict who is entirely confused by this show of kindness. It's a picture of our guy, Valjean. This is not how the world has treated him. In the book, the author gives us clues into the bishop's character so that we can better picture this joyful, happy, loving man. He's almost giddy at the opportunity to surprise someone with a small taste of the kingdom. The story moves on and Valjean does become an honest man who lives the rest of his life serving others. But the bishop doesn't get to know this. He's gone from the story once our hero moves on. His kingdom act was not a means to an end in his mind. He had no idea what would become of Valjean, and yet he gave generously without counting the cost because he had practiced so diligently that kingdom living was his only option. I would argue that the bishop gives us an example of what it looks like to practice the presence of a kingdom that's both already here and not yet. But it's not just in Broadway musicals. This type of kingdom living story plays out in many forms in our local community. If you pay attention, you can see it everywhere. For example, I have the honor of serving on the Shepherd's House Board of Directors, which means I have had a front row seat over the years watching the work of this amazing organization. And if you don't know, one of the founders of Shepherd's House Ministries and the current chaplain is our very own Cash Lowe. In his years working with folks in recoveries, he has more bishop moments than I'm sure he could count. He has loved on folks over at Shepherd's House for years and constantly lets the spirit shape his posture, his words, and his actions. Countless men and women have experienced the kingdom of God through Cash and the staff of Shepherd's House. And Cash has told me that he had to learn early on, just like the bishop, he usually doesn't get to see the story play out. He has to live very much in the moment embodying the reign of Christ each minute of each day and show love, compassion, and dignity to whoever God brings across his path. Sometimes practicing the presence of the kingdom in a broken world looks like showing grace to someone without expecting anything in return. Evelyn and Aaron Young and their daughter Hannah have followed the leading of the Holy Spirit into the world of foster care. They have opened their home to 11 babies over the years, reliving those sleepless newborn nights many times over so that these sweet kiddos will have a safe, loving home for this challenging season in their lives. Sometimes practicing the presence of the kingdom in a broken world looks like sleepless nights comforting a baby. 
As Dave and Lauren Creel practiced living into the kingdom of God, they felt compelled to see that Antioch would become a gun decommissioning site this year. They and a host of volunteers worked tirelessly to turn our parking lot into a little patch of the kingdom where weapons of destruction were literally beaten into garden tools. It brought me great joy when folks heard about the event and I got to confirm, yep, this is happening at a church. Sometimes practicing the presence of the kingdom of God in a broken world looks like power tools and piles of decommissioned gun parts. One of our elders, Jerry, and his wife, Shar, have spent the last 12 years turning extra bedrooms in their house into safe havens for folks in Bend due to medical reasons. Whether there's been an accident while on vacation or they've had to travel here for a specific procedure, the Schultzes have opened their home to anyone needing medical respite lodging. Sometimes practicing the presence of the kingdom in a broken world looks like sharing your home with a stranger. For Joel Schmidt, practicing the kingdom has meant coordinating a monthly event for foster families. Once a month, a host of volunteers and a bunch of energetic kiddos converge on the Methodist Church downtown, where Joel and many volunteers throw a party and say a lot of yeses to kids whose lives have been turned upside down by the realities of broken families. Sometimes, practicing the presence of the kingdom in a broken world looks like giving kids in care a few hours of joy each month. These are just a few examples of what practicing the already not yet kingdom looks like. There are dozens more in this room that I could have shared, and I love seeing all the different glimpses of the kingdom in the life of our church. So, so far, we've talked about what the kingdom is, a place where God reigns that is different from kingdoms of the world, We've talked about where the kingdom is in our very midst, but also maybe on the way. And we've wrestled with when the kingdom is, already and not yet. But in all these stories I shared, from the bishop in Les Mis to folks here in our congregation, the answers to what, where, and when don't really seem to solve our confusion about life in the kingdom. There's one more question we have to ask. Let's go back to our passage in Acts. In verse 6, the disciples asked Jesus when he will restore the kingdom. And here's how Jesus answers them in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So when the disciples ask Jesus about his kingdom, he doesn't give them a what, when, or where. He gives them a who. The disciples ask Jesus for his kingdom, and he gives them the Holy Spirit. So maybe the most important thing we can know about the kingdom is that it's not found in a vague, abstract idea. It's not found in something we can control. It's not found in a physical location. It's found in someone, a living, moving person present in our midst, in us, and all around us. That someone is the Holy Spirit. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. If you pay attention throughout the gospel stories, the Holy Spirit was a central character in Jesus' life and ministry. In the Gospel of Luke, we read that when Jesus was baptized, the Spirit descended on him in bodily form. In the Gospel of John, Jesus tells his followers that the Spirit will lead them and teach them everything. 
And in our passage today, we read that the Spirit gives us the power to share the gospel with anyone and everyone to the ends of the earth. The kingdom of God is breaking in all around us, not in an idea, a program, or a place, but in the person of the Holy Spirit. So maybe life in God's kingdom is actually about a relationship, first and foremost. Maybe the kingdom looks like letting the Holy Spirit guide us in showing grace to those on the margins. Maybe it looks like relying on the strength and the courage of the Spirit to host a gun decommissioning. Maybe it looks like following the Spirit's leading into whatever we've been given to do. Maybe the Holy Spirit is pretty creative, and just like in Jesus' life and among his followers, we get to be too. If the Spirit of God that existed in Jesus, who was given to his followers, is ours to draw from as well, that forces us to tap into a deeper level of soul. This resonates on some level, doesn't it? We know we're more than a brain and muscles and bones. We have souls, and we tend to talk about our souls as the deepest part of who we are. We engage with our souls when we pray and when we connect to God in spirit. We have access to the same spirit that enabled Jesus' ministry, the same spirit that has empowered the church for the last 2,000 years and continues to empower the church today. God's living, active spirit is available to each one of us. Five years ago, when I first accepted this role at Antioch, I had a mindset similar to the disciples. I wanted to know what was the plan, what would come next, what did God have in store? But in my practice of listening to the Holy Spirit, my attention was drawn again and again to a couple of lines from Brian Zahn's expanded rendition of the Lord's Prayer. He rewrote, your kingdom come, your will be done, to read this. May we be in anticipation of the age to come. May we embody the reign of Christ here and now. Do you hear the already, not yet in there? The age to come and the here and now. I didn't know where God would lead me in this role or how Antioch would be shaped and formed as I followed that leading, but these two lines from the expanded Lord's Prayer stood out and have shaped my prayer life and my practice It has been my prayer for you, Antioch, for the last five years. So before I close, I have a challenge for you. Let's continue to become a church family that practices the presence of the kingdom of God by growing in our relationship with the Holy Spirit. Be open to what spirit-empowered life could look like for you. I know that people have all kinds of weird takes about the Holy Spirit, Sometimes you hear someone say there's a specific formula to being filled with the Spirit, as if we can control the time and place that the Spirit moves. Listen to how Jesus talks about the Spirit. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Even Jesus says, trying to pin the Holy Spirit down is like trying to nail the wind to a wall. So we don't need to know the plan. We don't need to know what comes next. We can trust God and follow without worrying about what it is going to look like when we do. 
We can begin to tap into the kingdom of God by growing in our practice and awareness of the presence of the Spirit. Just imagine it, all of us, moving and living in the Spirit, blowing like the wind everywhere. Central Oregon won't know what to do with us. So my challenge to you isn't to go out and do something. You don't have to start volunteering or launch a new nonprofit. We aren't the ones fixing the brokenness in our world. That's God's job. But we get to be a part of the process. And to do that well, we need to practice. We need to practice being in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Start small. Sit in stillness and quiet for 30 seconds. Work your way up. It will likely feel awkward at the start. That's okay. This is practice. And if you've learned to play an instrument or speak another language, you know the beginning is not pretty. The only way to get better at it, though, is to practice. Start in the morning if that works for you, and then continue to find moments throughout the day to practice the reality that you have the power of the Holy Spirit. You are a little piece of the kingdom. I remember my grandma when she was well into her 90s, living in an assisted care facility, watching her neighbors pass away one by one. It would have been understandable if she'd been depressed in this situation, but she was a practicer of communing with the Spirit and knew that her life was not her own. She told me that every morning when she woke up, she figured God wasn't done with her yet. So she'd start her day by asking what God had for her to do that day. She said as long as God kept giving her days, there must be something for her to do. So like my grandma, each day I wake up, I head to my favorite chair by my front window, and I begin my practice with this prayer. Oh God, let my soul rise up to meet you as the day rises to meet the sun. And I sit in silence, hands open, practicing the awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit. With practice, you will see more and more opportunities for the kingdom to break through in your life. Sometimes these things may feel insignificant or maybe even overwhelming. The opportunities are everywhere. Any place where there is brokenness is in need of a touch of the kingdom. Think of our friend from Les Mis, the bishop. He had practiced the presence of the Holy Spirit so continually that without missing a beat and with a giddy smile, he lied to a policeman, spoke dignity to a convict, and lost all his silver, all in one fell swoop. And so, my church family, may you start each day in giddy anticipation of whatever God has in store for you as you embody the reign of Christ here and now, living your life as an anticipation of the age to come through the power of the Holy Spirit. Can I have an amen? Amen. Yeah, amen.